You're listening to Mid-Moment. I'm Lori Patton, president of Middlebury and professor of religion. In this special series, I'm checking in with our community to see how people are doing so that we might get a better idea of what it's like to be alone together. Today, I'm speaking with Dick Clay, a Breadloaf student who recently recovered from COVID-19. My name is Dick Clay, and I am entering my third summer, which will be the summer of writing, which I will do here in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, By training, I'm a lawyer with 42 years of experience. Dick, thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad you're healthy, and we're so glad that you've been able to be with us. How are you feeling? How are you doing today? Well, I'm standing up as we speak, and I'm perfectly vertical. I'm in great shape. I'm walking, oh, two or three miles a day fast. It's just an absolutely wonderful, miraculous thing uh, that I'm back. So you're feeling miraculous because you, in fact, have suffered from COVID. and. So tell us a little bit about your journey, story. How did the story of COVID-19 begin for you? I chaired the board of the Speed Art Museum here in Louisville. Every year, the first Saturday in March, we have a ball. This was the ball on Saturday, March 7th. My wife and I went and I remember at the ball that night, people were you know, doing the elbow bumps and all of that. But I don't think anyone really took it seriously. And we are pretty sure we were exposed there. And so you got home from the ball. You had a great night yeah. dancing. Yeah. yeah. The symptoms came a week later. And I felt like I had a fever. And Elizabeth, my wife, took my temperature. It was 102. It really didn't occur to me that time that I was COVID positive. For the next 10 days, I was home with a fever the entire time. We were fortunate in that my wife and I have some good doctor friends, and one of them got us into testing that afternoon. The test results for me didn't come back until I already was in the hospital. We were both positive. Uh, Elizabeth was asymptomatic the entire time, uh, with the exception that ultimately she lost her sense of taste and smell. I, the fever, some slight coughing, and then an increasing feeling of lethargy, uh, I think were my primary symptoms. And I found out I'd lost taste and smell when, when after talking to my internist, and she said, we'll stay home and self-quarantine. We, I couldn't smell or taste all the bleach products we were using to clean our house. Wow. <laughs> so you were at home for 10 days, yeah. feeling like it was a kind of fluey thing. And then you got to the hospital because your condition worsened? Yes. My internist, who is also a very, very close friend of ours, she called and said, you don't sound good. This was on March 24th. 
And I said, oh, I, I'm sure I'll snap out of it. She says, what about shortness of breath? And I said, well, when I walk up the stairs, I feel a little winded at the top. <laughs> she said, you need to go to the hospital. She said, I'm going to talk to Elizabeth. So she called Elizabeth downstairs in our basement, who was at that time making a quilt on our pool table. And Elizabeth came upstairs with tears in her eyes and said, I need to take you to the ER. So off we went, and it suddenly the enormity of it all hit me. Hit you. Uh, yeah. it, it had, and, and I had felt, I was feeling so badly a couple of days earlier that, you know, I, and I had so much time on my hands that I thought, well, Elizabeth has always asked me to write my obituary or at least give her a rough draft of it. So that was on my to-do list, so I just did it. But it didn't totally register with me or occur to me that I could possibly die. Were you put on the ventilator right away when you got there the first time, or did your condition worsen over your stay in the hospital? I went from the emergency room to ICU. I remember that they gave me a cheeseburger, and I was so happy. It was delicious. <laughs> and so I must have been hungry. And I spent the night in ICU, and then the next morning, an anesthesiologist came in, Dr. Cheryl Cowens. And Dr. Cowens said, we're going to intubate you. And I think I simply, my reaction was, well, I, I have no choice. <laughs> You're in charge, and that's fine. I said, can, can you all, can I call my wife? Can I call home? And they said, well, we don't really have time, but we'll, we've called her already, and we'll call her again. And I thought, oh, I'm a bit player in this <laughs> drama. For the next seven or eight days, it seems to me as if it was a bit of a blur. In your narrative, uh, we went from shortness of breath at the top of the stairs to going to the hospital to needing to be on a ventilator. Did you yeah. experience a shortness of breath so dramatic that you needed to be on the ventilator? Or were you thinking, we're all okay, but they put you on the ventilator anyway? That's what I thought. The shortness of breath creeps up on a person yeah. so that he or she gets so used to it that they don't notice it. Six or seven days, you're, you were on a ventilator initially. And then you came off the ventilator when you woke up. Ah, I was on the ventilator for two or three days. Yeah. Then they wanted to see if my oxygen levels had stabilized. And if I was in the optimal oxygen is 95% or over. And I had been down in the 80s, which is a bad, bad thing. So they took me off the ventilator. They still had oxygen tubes going through my nose. But again, the oxygen level fell. So the next morning, they put me back on the ventilator. So I was off the ventilator just overnight. Can I say a few things about the doctors and the staff? Of course, you can say anything you want. The 
doctors who treated me were young. So if you have students at Middlebury uh, who want to be doctors, this is a word of encouragement because these young people, and I can say young, I'll be 69 in July, were superstars. They would come in and talk to me. And they, of course, had masks. They had rubber gloves. Uh, but they both did not hesitate to hold my hand. This is very emotional. Oh, they, they are at home with young children, and they're all front line. And they're all very, very brave, and they're not paid what they're worth, and they're not, they can never have adequate recognition. Yeah. You went through this and you were kind of, you know, it sounds like in a haze. And then there was a point at which you felt that you were ready to move out of the ICU and mm -hmm. recover. So probably my guess, you can tell me if this isn't the case, that the seriousness of the situation maybe only hit you when you started to recover. That's wonderful perception on your part. They let me bring my notes from ICU out with me. And I feel fortunate that they did. They're all in pencil. And remember, I couldn't talk because of these feeding tubes and, and you know, the ventilator stuff all going down my throat. So I couldn't talk, but I, they would let me write questions in ICU. The one question is, will I live? Question mark. That was the one that is perhaps the most telling about my state of mind at some time in that blurry period. You're talking to a litigator of 42 years training. Right. Lawyers don't tell their clients they're going to win. Right. Uh, you, you, you can encourage them, but you don't want to get their hopes totally up in case there's a result that is not what you or they expected. Yeah. And so these doctors were doing the same thing. And the nurses, they were cautious. I think one of them told my wife, we're cautiously optimistic. Anyway, off to recovery I went. That had its own new set of learning opportunities. There's a wonderful phrase that I used in a letter that was penned by a mid alum called the wilderness path of recovery. And it's almost yeah. as if we're experiencing this now all over the country, that the practice of recovery is almost as disorienting and hard as the actual pandemic. So tell us about that. The wilderness experience. I learned the simplest little things have meaning in a recovery room. For somebody who took a Centrum Silver and a vitamin D pill every day, and that was my total medication, going into the hospital. All of this was a new and different experience. Bedpans. Yeah. <laughs> I've never had a bedpan in my life. And moving and being moved so I wouldn't get bed sores. So I couldn't get out of bed. Okay, plus I was exhausted and I hadn't moved and I'd lost 16 pounds. And in recovery, my feet wouldn't bear weight. None of the rehab centers 
at that time, and this was sort of early in the COVID game, wanted to take COVID patients. They were scared of us. I, it's the first time I've ever felt I've been, you know, I mean, look at me. I'm Mr. White Male Privilege. I'd never been discriminated against in my life, but I suddenly was feeling like, what? Yeah. They won't let me come in their doors? What's this all about? Yeah, so that, that was an interesting experience. And the way we took care of it was Dr. Kelly said, oh, do you think you need to stay another two days? Oh, yes, Dr. Kelly, I do. Done. And that made all the difference in the world because then I was able to walk with the assistance of a walker. Part of the heartbreak of this experience for people is that you're in isolation. When did Elizabeth, she also had it. When did you finally see each other? A van brought me home on April 8th uh, oh. from the hospital. And unfortunately for my frail ego, it was the day before they started playing Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles <laughs> with all the nurses outside clapping for oh. you the hospital. So you were an unsung hero. On that I was space. an unsung hero. <laughs> For the last part of our conversation, Nick, I want to uh -huh. ask you about your writing and ask you about Breadloaf. So okay. you've made a career move to do this after a long career as a litigator. So tell us, are you going to be writing about COVID for Breadloaf this summer? Yes, I am. What I want to do is write about my COVID experience in the form of prayers and meditations. And I started this with a creative nonfiction course or tutorial that I had in the summer of 2018 with Gwyneth Lewis. And then also that summer, I was taking modern British and American poetry with Michael Wood. They're both splendid teachers. Yes, indeed. Uh, How are you structuring your prayers and meditations for your writing the uh, summer at Breadloaf? A passage from the Bible, either the Hebrew Bible or, or the New Testament. Then I would write about an experience I had that was informed by that passage. Then I would end it with generally a brief prayer or something from someone smarter or a better writer than I. What I want to do is take this experience and put it in the context of poetry by John Donne and George Herbert, who yeah. both wrote during times uh, of plague. What I'm interested in in particular is... Uh -huh because I knew about your engagement with the Filson Historical Society. I grew up in Danvers, Massachusetts, formerly known as Salem Village, and yeah. my folks were very engaged in local History. historical society. I'm interested in whether a kind of local history of the experience of COVID during this time might be something you'd consider working on. Definitely. The Filson already is collecting in, in any way we can get it, uh, written forms, uh, either in handwriting, in emails, whatever. And one thing that's informed all of this is we have a pretty extensive collection of the pandemic uh, uh, in 1918, 
We have pictures. We have writing from that. It's been very telling uh, to look at that history as compared to what we're doing now. We also feel that you're joining us at Breadloaf is two reasons for celebration. One, it's good for Breadloaf, but the other is that it's a sign of great vitality and love of life on your part. Yeah, it's fun to be about the oldest person there. Right, and it's a sign of your recovery, so that's also a reason to celebrate. I wish I could say I would see you on the mountain this summer. I cannot say that at the moment, but I, I can't wait to see you back on the mountain very soon. Excellent.